Welcome to the Aquas Podcast. Conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Aquest podcast, the easy listening funds industry podcast. I'm Danny Lawler from Aquest and for this episode I'm joined by Martin Parks from BlackRock. Martin, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks Danny. Um, so I work in BlackRock's public policy team. So we engage with uh, regulators, policymakers around Europe on issues relating to policy affecting asset managers and our clients. My background, Um, I joined BlackRock 13 years ago. So I joined the part of BlackRock, which was then Merrill Lynch Investment Managers. I didn't join in the policy team. I joined as a a funds lawyer from a private practice law firm um, where I'd worked for a number of years. And my role has developed um, over time since, since I joined. And it's been busy, I imagine, given all of the initiatives since 08, 09 through to today. Very much so. I mean, I came into policy uh, bit by bit. My first introduction was when um, one of my colleagues said, we've got an advanced copy of the proposed Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive. Could you take a look at it as a lawyer? And what do you think this is going to mean for our fund range? Yeah. And that then led into, uh, there are a number of issues here which, uh, which, would, severe, which would have severely affected our ability of our clients around the world to access the strategies that they needed. Yeah, yeah. And I also moved from being a funds lawyer to being, uh, you know, on the policy side. And it is quite a different role. And I actually found being a policy person much more technically, uh, you know, much more technically involved and legally involved than often being a funds lawyer was. I don't know if you found that as well. You spend more time with the, the legislation and shaping it on the policy side. It's very, interesting. it's very interesting you say that because I think being in policy, you have to have a number of different skills. So you're looking at the technical analysis and you're looking at a piece of legislation and saying, that's not going to work. And instead of saying, well, how do we comply with this piece of legislation is saying, how do we develop a, how do we develop a narrative, a strategy in order to respond to this proposed piece of legislation, which will actually meet its need, mm. the needs of the, the regulator, but will also um, meet the needs of clients and our operational constraints as well. Yeah, and what is it then, because uh, I'm always interested to know what it is that, that gets uh, people most enthused about their job. Or, so what is it that makes you most passionate or, or gets you uh, mo- most uh, interested in your job? So what I love doing is talking to my clients and trying to find solutions. And when I say clients, we see clients in a number of different areas. So we very much see regulators and policymakers and ministries of finance as our clients. Mm. Stakeholders. Stakeholders, who we're talking to on a regular basis. And so we really try to listen to them as much as we are talking to them. So we will go in on a regular basis and say, this is a new piece of legislation, this is what we think about it, Um, this is what we think it means for investors, but what is on your mind? Mm. Are there areas of the market that you need more information about? What do you need to know from us as a big market player? And quite often what will happen is that we will have the same conversation with three or four different policymakers, at which point we go and say, well, actually, this, this is an emerging issue. Yeah. Let us go away and think about it and let us, we quite often do our viewpoints, which are white papers. So we do about a dozen of those a year. And typically those come back from 
the conversations we've had with regulators and policymakers wanting to know more about, let's say, how do ETFs operate mm. in actual fact? How do fixed income markets work? Um, what do we think about pension reform in this country or that country? And so that's a very fascinating process yeah. of finding the information and then responding back to our stakeholders. And do you find, uh, as much as you can tell, that um, that uh, they like to see you arrive in for these meetings or do you, feel, or, or do you ever get the sense that it's, oh, here they come again? Uh, uh, you know, do you get a sense that your your uh, interaction with them is is valued and effective? Well, what I find works is that it's an ongoing conversation, mm. and when you have a when you've built up a good relationship, is that you get the proactive call. You will say, "Have you got something on this?" Or we haven't seen you for a couple of months. By the way, do you have anything on this? Yeah. We'd like we'd like to talk to you about this. And that's, that's really the sort of proof that you've got a good ongoing relationship because they feel they can pick up the phone and talk to you. Yeah, and I think where, where that interaction is very useful from a regulator's perspective is around things like impact, client impact and market impact because as a, a policy person, you can create a proposal for, let's say, a set of rules that you think is effective and proportionate, but then you need to go and test them and see, well, what impact is this actually going to have and do I need to recalibrate? So that, that ability to, to test it or hook in with, with the industry side and see, well, how is this actually going to play out in practice is, is very important, very important in the rulemaking process. Yes, and, that's, and that then links into our other big clients who are our you know, contractual clients who are our big distributors, our big institutional investors or our end retail investors. Mm. And it's going out to them and having the discussions with them of how it affects them. Because sometimes we have a very clear view, but we will go out on a regular basis and test our views and say, we are, we've been asked by regulators to give a view on this. This is, our, this is our view. This is what we're saying. What do you think about this? Do you have other issues that yeah. you would like us to feed into this, into this debate so we can give a richer, more valu- valuable response? And so your interactions with your end clients, uh, obviously one of the, the biggest issues at the moment is around value for money and it's around um, pension provisioning and, and trying to close that gap to make sure people have good saving levels for uh, comfortable retirements. Is that something that is beginning, middle and end of all your client conversations? Is it, is it just part of it? How, how interested are, are, are your end clients in discussions around, say, fees? So this is a debate that has been ongoing for a number of years. Pension fund clients have been talking to us about charges and cost transparency for a number of years, wanting to understand how this affects performance. So I think what's useful to understand is that the asset management industry has been transparent on the charges that it's been levying on clients. So those are its annual management charges, the charges of service providers in funds, such as administrators, depositories. There's been a very clear process of how to calculate those and disclose those to investors. What has been less less clear are the costs of implementing a strategy in the market. So the costs are costs which can either be explicit, those are broker commissions that, uh, that have to be paid out of client accounts, or stamp duty that are paid to government, or there are also implicit costs, 
So a lot of instruments such as bonds don't have a broker commission, for example. They have a bid spread. Or the costs of implementing a strategy in the market can depend about how long you take to implement or if you fail to um, implement quickly enough. It's those costs. And so asset managers and ourselves have had a lot of internal processes for assessing that. Why? The reason why is that those those costs impact net performance. Mm. And net performance figures are something that clients have had for a very long time and what, what they judge us by. But what they haven't necessarily seen is the breakdown of how we get to our net performance figures. They've seen the charges, but the costs um, have been less clear simply because there hasn't been a standard industry mechanism yeah. to disclose that. So we've, as managers, we've all had our internal methods methodologies um, to do that, to look at the effect of costs, but we haven't had a standard standard industry template. And so the new legislation in MIFID and PRIPS actually provides a standard methodology. Yeah. What's the reaction been to the, to the disclosures? Certainly on the press side, it's fair to say that it's been very focused on the numbers being much larger than the, obviously that the press had expected. Um, when you deal with clients, are you finding that they are extremely surprised by what they see? Are they quite uh, unsurprised and it's pretty much what they expected? What's the reaction? So I think the, the main thing that clients want, and especially on the distribution and intermediation side, is they want an explanation. Mm. So they see net performance and they want to understand more about how these additional market costs actually drive performance because some of these mark some of these market costs don't actually diminish performance so a charge an annual management charge yes that reduces performance but in including but incurring certain market costs can actually increase performance so for example if you have got a high alpha active strategy you may want to actually get access to a certain stock very quickly in order to lock in long-term performance. If you're an index strategy and you're rebalancing, you may actually want to implement on a very slow segmented basis to minimise market impact. So it could be money well spent. So it could be money well spent. And so when you look at the costs, you have to look at the, both the outcome for the strategy that you're, that, that you're running. You know, have you achieved the outcome? Um, and then how those costs compare against other players running similar strategies. And so this comes back into the value for money of a specific strategy yeah. and how that affects performance. So just folk, you know, the transparency on costs is very important, but it's only one part of the picture. And so what we've been asked for a lot is to have the the more detailed narrative, the more detailed story of about how our costs have effect, have led to performance outcomes. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that's a, a piece of work that's going to continue into the future as you continue to have these discussions and people get more used to these disclosures and the standardization and the different way forms are. And yes, it's very much a, an iterative process yeah. because this is the first time regulators and industry have got together to come through with a standard methodology. Mm. And this is across all instrument types and all strategy types. So as anything with one standard methodology, it's, it's, going, to, it's going to throw up 
um, certain surprising figures from time to time, yeah. which may need um, industry and regulators to go back again and do some adjustment, do some more breakdowns or do some tweaking on the, on the process, especially on the implicit cost side, yeah. to show a more realistic implicit cost. And so that is a, that's a process which will certainly continue, in our view, for the next couple of years. Yeah, I think, I think it's absolutely likely to. Uh, and I think in addition to, to fees and costs being one of the, the issues that's hot at the moment, another one is culture. Um, it's certainly on the radar for quite a number of regulators that are interested in um, trying to assess and gauge what culture they're seeing in the firms that they regulate and then that'll move towards presumably trying to improve it and and, and have stronger compliance cultures. Uh, For me, culture is the way we do things around here. Is that how how you would see it as well, if you were to define it? Yes, and I would say very much from our perspective at BlackRock, it is that culture is incredibly important. Like most firms, we have a mission statement, but we have a fairly simple mission statement. But it is one about focusing on clients. It's focusing on having a single firm solution, um, focusing on performance and innovation. So those are key themes. How you implement that on a day-to-day basis, how you make sure that those themes come up in everyday conversation, that if you are having a tricky technical policy discussion about a piece of legislation it is challenging yourself in the conversation every five or ten minutes is saying this is very interesting let us bring this back this conversation back to the end investor what does it mean for them how can we show that this will have a an effect positive or negative on the end investor Mm. and how do we work through that it keeps it keeps the conversations very centered yeah yeah, and so then by continually doing that, presumably then that, that engenders that culture that says the client is at the centre of what we do. Very much so. And then it's that culture of challenge is important. And one of the things we're spending a lot of time on is diversity. And diversity is, an, is you know, looks at gender, it looks at LGBT, it looks at ethnicity and making sure you have an appropriate representation. But it is. But that is fundamental. What fundamentally is important is having diverse teams with different viewpoints, mm. and so it is bringing people from different cultures together. We are a large global firm, and we will only be successful if we really incorporate the viewpoints from people around the world into our decision making. Because otherwise, we're just simply not going to be successful in, in speaking to our clients. Mm. And so it is very much thinking about when you have a group, have you got the right have you got the right experience? Have you got people with different viewpoints in here? And it's saying, has everybody agreed very easily to this point of view? And is that something you do systematically? Is it a very conscious um process or is it something that just happens? It happens if you think about it very consciously, Yes, if you like. So um, that is very much thinking on when you're pulling people together, it's saying, am I always talking to the same group of people in the firm? Because I always know they'll give me a quick response, which is nice and it makes your life easier. But are you actually reflecting the full diversity of thought in the firm? Are you... 
have you found other people who've come in? You know, we're a large firm. We've constantly got people coming in. And it's, are, are you sitting there with bias of talking to the people you always talk to because you know them, whereas there's, there are new members of staff who've been deliberately brought in because they've got a different point of view? Are you effectively mining their experience? Yeah. And I think from a regulator's perspective, the, the, um, the idea of a strong compliance culture is really the holy grail, as far as I can see, because what it should mean is that people are doing the right thing, even if there's nobody standing on their shoulder checking if they're doing the right thing. So if you, as a regulator, are um, overseeing firms where you are confident that that is how they run, then it gives you more confidence in deploying your resources and and overseeing uh, the firms that you've authorised that actually... Uh, even when I'm not there to stand on their shoulder, that when they're making decisions and when they're dealing with clients, they're doing it in a way that is in the best interest of those clients. So it's a very uh, effective policing mechanism. It's a very effective way of trying to achieve a regulator's mandate, which is usually around protecting consumers. So uh, it's it's a, a huge issue, huge issue. And the, and the better it can be um, explained and the better it can be engendered, then the better for the firms and the regulators and ultimately the clients, which is what it's all about. And I think it's something where you never stand still. You don't. You never achieve the perfect compliance culture mm. or the perfect culture. The world around you is always changing. There's new business ideas coming in. There's new business models. So you constantly have to adapt the culture and grow the culture. So it's having those that clear focus on what builds a good culture and then constantly adapting and renewing and updating that culture. And is that something that comes from the top? Is it, is it, is it a vibe that you're very conscious of day-to-day in, in the job? Very much. I mean, BlackRock as a firm is, is 30 years old. It's, 30, it's um, 30 years old in March. And four of the original founders are still there. And they very much drive this feeling of a, of a founder's culture, which is is of challenge, of focus on end invest on the end investor, but also on innovation. To say, you know, the firm was founded thirty years ago; it didn't exist. Someone somewhere else will be creating the new black rock somewhere, and we have to constantly innovate and keep up mm. in order to maintain our comp- our competitive edge. So, it is trying within a firm that is. Uh, as a large firm to keep up that startup entrepreneurial um, side to it, because that is what brings in the diversity of thought, the innovation that keeps us going and allows us to grow. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you one more question around, um, I suppose it's whether, because BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world, whether that's a burden or it's something that you're very conscious of as you make your policy submissions or you do your work or is it something that that just is what it is because certainly when I was in the regulator I was very conscious that it wasn't Danny Lawler speaking on a point it was Danny Lawler the central bank speaking on a point and so um, it took on more importance than for the or could have taken on more importance for, for what people were hearing so you had to be very careful that you you know you you were thoughtful about what you said and if you were doing a panel discussion or a speech or a public uh, event that you were very careful and measured in, in what you said. Uh, is that similar for you guys 
do you feel that there's uh, like an obligation or there's eyes on you doing doing a job because of your size? So it comes back to say three points. First of all is that we've got this obligation which underlines everything we do, which is our duty to our clients. Mm. And so if we are publicly talking about a policy initiative, we have to really ensure that it reflects the interests of investors. And we keep ourselves very honest in that process by a huge amount of transparency. So when we set up the policy team, one of the first things we did was set up a, a policy website, which is on the blackrock.com website. You search public policy and you see all our responses to regulators and policymakers that we have done and all our white papers and discussion papers that we have done. And so that was a very deliberate position to say anything we put out into the public has to be reviewed, understood by the whole firm because people will read it and people will want to read it. And that is a responsibility to clients, responsibility to the firm to take this very seriously. The other, the other aspect is very much focusing on how we engage with others, that we are one asset manager among thousands of asset managers. And that in many, many cases, clients do want consistent solutions. So last year was a great example. We went through the whole process of implementing MIFID. And our whole distribution network needs product governance information from asset managers. And we had a very clear message from all our key distributors saying that they wanted a single solution from the asset managers. And they did not want a BlackRock solution. However whizzy or nice, they wanted one solution to implement. Mm. And so we took that on board and spent a lot of time with our key trade associations and my counterparts at a number of other firms really spending a lot of time trying to get to a common template that would work from everybody so we could communicate in the same way information about our products throughout the whole European distribution chain. And that is something that we were very conscious of, of the importance of getting that right. So it's not just about the the Black Rock way. It's about contributing to industry level standards and, and being part of the team or part of the industry as a whole. Yes, it's very much about saying we're part of a wider ecosystem and we have a duty to that wider ecosystem as well. Great. I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you very much for your time, Martin, and thank you for listening. I look forward to talking to you next time. You've been listening to the Aquas podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on regs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.